I do believe that if you are a kind of a corporate executive, you've probably worked in a highly intimidating threat-based environment and potentially had that seeped into how you think work should work. And you bring that to the other company that does not benefit from that. Welcome to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast, where founders and business leaders talk about how they built a company culture that is so incredible, their employees brag about it. Our show aims to inspire you as you build a Bragworthy culture of your own. Culture building is philosophical and practical, and you'll find both discussed here. Grab a pen and a notebook. We're about to drop some knowledge. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us. Here's your host, Jordan Peace. Welcome back to Bragworthy Culture. This is your host, Jordan Peace, and I'm so excited to welcome Max Yoder today. If you don't know Max, you should. Max is the co-founder and CEO of Lessonly. So he also is the author of two different books. We'll talk about one of them today, but they are called Do Better Work. And the second one is called To See It, Be It. We're going to talk about To See It, Be It a little bit today. Max, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. I'm pumped. I'm pumped. I love what you've written. Really enjoyed reading through To See It, Be It in the last couple of days in preparation. And uh, really, really resonate with a lot of what you wrote. Well, thanks for reading it. I had a lot of writing it. Not always. It's fun when it was done. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure it's very satisfying to get those thoughts down on paper and sort of solidified. So first, let's talk about kind of your background, how you got to Lessonly. I know that was founded in 2012. And then you guys were just acquired, which is huge. Congratulations. That was only a number of months ago, right? Three, four months ago now. Yeah, last August. So almost a year. Oh, a year. Okay. Yeah, it flew by for me. Yeah. So the business started in 2012. It was the second company I'd ever tried to start. The second one was called Lessonly. First one was called Quipple. Quipple was the surveying polling software. It was when social media was really starting to show that it was a, you know, an interesting medium, you know, 2010, 2011, and broadening its appeal. Anyhow, Quipple was not a great business, ran it for about a year and nine months, started it with some friends, didn't sell a dime of software. I worked my butt off to try to sell many dimes of software and spent a lot of my own dimes to try to sell it. And it just wasn't going anywhere. And I realized I'd built something that I thought was what people needed, but I didn't really do a lot of great market research, didn't really do the MVP route was, you know, had some kind of hubris and naivety, I think. So very difficult to shut that down, but ultimately went back to some of the friends who I'd helped, uh, who had helped me build Quipple and was like, I think I want to do this again. And they encouraged me and said, yeah, let's do it again. And started Lessonly. So 2012 training software, there are 400 learning management systems out there. And we had this idea that, well, we had this insight from many people that they didn't enjoy using training software. Everybody we talked to who bought training software, by and large, I shouldn't say everybody, but by and large, were dissatisfied. They were like, it's really expensive. It's hard to use. And we don't really know how well it's working. So we were like, let's make something that isn't so expensive. that is not hard to use. And that is as a focus. So we know if it's working or not. And that focus over time we found was sales and customer service teams. And so we made training software specifically for those two teams. We call them customer facing teams. And we still make training software for them. But like over time, you know, we realized that was our focus, a part of Seismic. We sell to those same teams. 
But that helped us make space in a sea of 400 competitors, many of which we never experienced because, you know, a lot of legacy companies, a lot of companies that were maybe comfortable having 10 clients and that was all they needed, small businesses sort of thing. When we sold the business size, we had about 1,100 customers, largely using, you know, 100 or 200 people. But then we had some customers that were training 30,000 people a month. So it was a big swath. I hope that helped background wise. No, that's great. I'm curious. What do you think was the kind of the differentiator that popped? What helped you jump off the page? Was it the design of the training itself and sort of the satisfaction of using it? Do you think some of it was related to the target audience of those customer facing or those people facing teams, kind of outward facing, all of that together? What do you think? Yeah. So design helped. We didn't know what training software was supposed to do. We, we were able to build a much more streamlined approach. And when I say what, was, what it's supposed to do, you know, there's, there's these folks that are learning and development specialists. They built their careers on understanding how to enable. And some of the things that they were taught aren't necessarily as valuable as they might have been told. And so we didn't kind of come in with the dogma that they had. And sometimes that was hard to sell to those folks, but we'd go to sell to a sales leader who was like, I just need to be able to tell my people what they need to know. Then I need to help them practice it. And I don't really care if it follows, you know, they didn't even know the dogma. So they're like, they're not asking us if it does certain things that, that the industry expected. They're just like, it works for me. So we were able to kind of come in with a lack of understanding of the space and therefore build something different that appealed to a different audience. Because there was already 400 tools out there if you wanted to kind of your traditional learning and development experience, you had plenty of options. But if you wanted something that maybe felt more consumer friendly, at the time when we built it, you know, Squarespace blowing up, we adored Mail MailChimp as an inspiration, it, Tumblr. These were all softwares that we could pull experiences from and really just, it, yeah, they inspired us. We built a lot of workflows. We were like, oh, that looks like Tumblr and we think it works great in Tumblr and we think it, it translates over here too. So did a lot of that. And then, you know, last part, focusing on sales and customer service teams, they were under invested in it at the time. And that created an opportunity for us not to sell the HR directly, though we sold the HR in our own way plenty of times. But our focus was sales and customer service teams. And that meant we were building a distinct path. We could charge differently. They had goals that they could measure ROI on. So many different things were a part of the mix of us being able to break through 400 other companies. And those were a couple. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love what you said about not coming in with the dogma and just not having this I don't set in stone perspective. You kind of came in as a learner and just sort of went, hey, exactly. This works in this consumer software over here and over there. I wonder if it would work here and just kind of staying curious. My, the people that work with me would tell you that they don't say the phrase best practices around me because I get upset. <laughs> I get upset at them. I'm like, I don't want to hear what the best practices are. We're entrepreneurs. We're going to figure out the next best practice. Sure. It can blind you. We were building software that we wanted to use. And we knew we weren't always our target audience, but we also knew that people are not that different from us and can be very different from us. But in terms of like a web-based user experience, we are like, hey, I think people will appreciate this, you know, even if it doesn't look like the traditional way. Yeah. Well, let's dig into you a little bit and we'll hop back to Lessonly. I want to talk kind of culture and kind of how you built things around there. But I think to get perspective on how you would even go about building a culture and writing values and some of those things. I think it probably helps to hear a little bit more about you in particular and how you informed that. One thing that jumped right off the page at me because of kind of the way I grew up and some of the things that I experienced, which we're not going to talk about me today, but you grew up in the family business was a funeral home, which is very unique perspective for a child. So I'm curious, how was that? How was being so kind of acquainted with death 
hearing the eulogies, hearing, seeing the tears, seeing the grief and the, and also the joys and all of that that comes through, you know, that experience. How did that shape you at a young age? You know, how did that inform how you see the world? Yeah. So my house was connected to the funeral home by the driveway. So the funeral home that my grandpa started, my dad and his brother then took over. And we had a big parking lot, you know, where people would come for viewings or before the funeral. And that parking lot connected to our house. And then next door, they put up a crematorium. So it looked like it was a garage that was my neighbor, but it was actually a crematorium. So, you know, there were people who were being cremated next to our spot. And that just, it, it is not strange after multiple exposures, but I could see that it was strange because I would talk to my friends and they were like, I've never seen a dead person. And I'd be like, I've seen hundreds of dead people. And that is an experience that I think is important is to see that it ends. And it doesn't just end for old and gray folks. Unfortunately, it ends for people who do not expect it to end. That was motivating to me to not kind of think that I was always going to have more time. I think it also, you know, put something in me that I, I'm still working through, which was this orientation to kind of get stuff done. And I think that's a cultural problem that we have in the United States, where we think, you know, our utility and value comes from our, what we've accomplished which, you know, I no longer believe. And I'm trying to make that bring that belief into my heart, because I know it's in my head. And I'm trying to get into my heart where it actually matters. But the fact that I felt like, hey, I might not know when this is over. I was like, well, I better do it today. And that kind of developed into a bit of a sickness that I'm now trying to work. It, it wasn't all like, beautiful lessons. It was also like some paranoia that, that came with it. But I take it any day growing up that close to a very important part of life, which is death. No, it's beautifully said. I mean, it's you have to hold in mind what's most important and you have to have a temporal view of there isn't a, a limited, unlimited amount of time to do all of the things that matter most to me and to give forgiveness when it needs to be forgiven and reconcile relationship and some of those things. But at the same time, you can't conquer the world in one day. Yeah, that, it's, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's a balance that I don't know how to strike. Yeah, amen. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I love that you kicked your book off that way. Another thing I really loved, well, first, actually, let's talk about this. The title of your book is See It, Be It, right? So talk a little bit more about kind of where you got that concept from, when that kind of clicked for you, your journey of life. You're kind of like, ah, okay, if I want something to be true in the world, I need to actually be that thing first, set that example first. Where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I love the quote that is attributed to Gandhi of, you know, being the change you want to see in the world. I think to see it be it really became clear to me when I was holding my daughter for the first time. She was born and my wife uh, had an emergency C-section. Uh, they thought my daughter's head was where it was supposed to be and it was actually inverted. So my wife has a really easy surgery, but it, you know, it was stressful. But it, when I say easy, like nothing went wrong. But she was recovering. My daughter goes to the NICU for an hour, which is you know, not too long, but it was also a little nerve wracking. So get some liquid out of her, her lungs that should have been expressed when she was pushed through my wife, but that didn't happen. So I get to hold her about an hour after she's been born and I am nervous and I put her in my arms and Jordan, my shoulders are like up and I'm wearing them like earrings. And because I think you know, this is just this frail little thing. I didn't even know if we're going to have a boy or a girl. And, you know, an hour before I find out we have a daughter and wow, it was a lot. And the nurse came over and asked me uh, basically if I was nervous. And I said, yeah, how can you? She, she, first, she pushed my shoulders down. She just gently pushed my shoulders down and was like, hey, are you nervous? And I said, yes. And she's like, the more relaxed you are, the easier it will be for baby to relax. And, uh, you know, basically showing me, I want my daughter to be relaxed and I am showing up tense. That is an asymmetry. And that asymmetry is existing all the time, right? If somebody is fired up and I want them to calm down, 
my best bet is to calm myself because I really have no control over them. But oftentimes they're getting fired up, so it'll agitate me. And now I'm just meeting them where they are and I'm just becoming a reflex. And I think a lot of the human experience is recognizing we don't need to be a reflex to whatever is right in front of us. Somebody comes at us with condemnation, we can practice compassion. But it is very difficult and nobody does it with perfection and I don't expect anybody to. But beyond that, beyond just modeling, if I want a room to be a certain way, being like, hey, can I show up that way? The more I try to model the things that I think are important, the more I realize how difficult they are. And so by nature of attempting to live the way that I intellectually think people should live, I realize how difficult it is. But if I just left that in the intellectual view and just said like, hey, I wish people lived this way and then didn't practice it myself, I might believe that it was much easier than it really is. So by practicing and trying to see the, be the things I want to see, I realize how difficult they are. And I realize that some of them are actually not, not as virtuous as I might think. But I put an idea into practice and I realize that isn't as beautiful as I hoped it would be. And, but because I gave it a try, I now know that. So I think to see it, be it, it's kind of, it works two ways. If I want to see something, I need to be it. But if I really want to see a thing, see it clearly, really understand it, I must first practice it. And by being that thing, I now see it more clearly. And I see, you know, what things are life-giving in all contexts, like compassion, and what things are maybe limited in their value. And most things are limited in their value, right? They need counterbalances. So it works both ways for me. It's modeling, but it's also like, hey, just because you want a model doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You're, I'm a human who has, its, who has reflexes that I didn't choose. And the human experience filled me with reflexes I did not choose. When I jump away from a ball coming my way, I didn't choose to have that reflex. It's a part of my evolutionary history. And those are all it, all through me. So having compassion for the times when I do not model and I'm not being the thing I want to see is, is very important. And you know, I hope that does not get lost in the message. And I hope people don't take away like, well, I should just be what I want to see. And if not doing that, then I suck at this. It's like, no, no, no. It is the practice. Yeah. You got to have grace with yourself. I like the way you put it, though. It's just not everything is universal, right? Some things like empathy and compassion, it's, they're going to show up well all the time. You model that to anyone at any point in history, now and in the future, good things happen. Yeah. I believe that with compassion. I don't believe that with empathy. I personally do not believe that with empathy. I think empathy is very much a limited thing. And I think a lot of times empathy is seen as, I'll be real quick here, but I think empathy is often seen as, as endlessly virtuous. If I'm showing empathy, it's endlessly virtuous. But what I've learned uh, is it wears down the batteries. So if I'm extending empathy in every direction, I then do not have energy to take care of myself or to have any compassionate action for somebody who's in need. So I think Robert Sapolsky, this guy who studies behavior, and he, he was sharing a bunch of research on basically if you show somebody things that make them really empathetic and they get really worn out and they think, well, I've done a good thing here because I've shown empathy for the individual. But sometimes we need compassionate action, right? We need to actually help that person in some way. And that requires energy. And if the empathy burns through us, we don't, then we just think the work is done because we've been empathetic. If we felt something, yeah. So and compassion is a thing that I think can flow. It maintains a level of, what's the word, boundaries. If we're practicing compassion appropriately, we do it appropriately. It's the wrong word. If we practice compassion in a way that can be sustained, it's with boundaries. And so I think empathy can be unbounded and that's nothing works unbounded. Uh, yeah, it's just there's limited resource there, I think, in our hearts and in our energy. And, and actually, I think that probably applies, I think, in our conversation around building culture, our conversation around building the organizations that we build and so forth. And I told you before we started recording, my organization's around 70 people. And even at 70, which is not a ton, there's already, I feel, a limited resource in my heart is to feel for all of these people, right? And what they're going through in their life. And to your very point, 
And so as a result, you kind of have to meter that. You kind of have to, I don't know, it's, it's an odd thing, but with social media and 24 hours news cycles, you're, we're doing this all the time anyway. We're already hearing about, we're always hearing about something horrible that's happening in the world. And if we just sit there and we fall all apart about everything we hear, you almost have to intentionally kind of control the output there. Yeah, it's boundaries, right? It's boundaries. That's boundaries. Where do I end and where do you begin and so forth? And it's difficult as heck. We don't get a lot of practice with it, man. You know, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it is hard. So I guess, well, let's go that direction in the conversation since we're already headed this direction, which is I think that as a leader of a company, what I see from people, what I'm feeling from the people that I lead is that they want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want me to feel with them, feel for them. They'd really prefer I agree with them as well, you know, on, on pretty much everything that they believe or think, which is just impractical because a lot of what they believe and think are opposed to one another if they really got down to it. How did you go about that as you went from 10 people, very intimate relationships, spending a ton of time together and then bouncing up to kind of the level that I'm at now? And then I'm not even sure exactly, I, forgive my lack of research, where you are from an employee count standpoint today, but how did you handle those jumps as the CEO? Yeah, well, it's so interesting that you, you're at 70 people and bringing this up because we were between 50 and 70 when I realized I could not be uh, what I would describe as emotional slavery in that state anymore. And one of my biggest challenges was, I think one of my biggest challenges in life is carrying other people's feelings and judgments. And it was right around that scale of, in our case, it was about 50 when I was like, I can't do this anymore. I was felt responsible for everybody's feelings. I felt responsible for everybody's judgments. And I didn't have any space, right? My cup was just overflowing with, it was, I was overwhelmed. And so I really wanted to stop hiring, which was not going to happen. We were growing so quickly. I growth business and I was like, please, please no more feelings. And so I got so... I, <laughs> Can we hire some robots this time around? <laughs> no more feeling. I thought we were going to hire our way into it by... I was going to bring in Megan Jarvis, who was very lucky to work with from 50 people to... We sold the business at 270 people. She took us as our head of talent from 50 to there. And I was hopeful that when she came in at 50, she would be able to carry more of the feelings. And she I thought, had a background in being able to do that in a more boundary-driven way. But it turns out that to some degree, being in the mix with folks and being somebody who is there as both, you know, just a listening ear to provide counsel, to provide mentorship, just to provide the fact that somebody's not alone. It's a part of what I like about the job, right? Just not too much, too often. So I was hoping that I was going to be able to just hide from it. And then I realized that's not going to work for me because part of what I love about this is being somewhat close to it, just not overwhelmed by it. So basically, I was the spectrum, right? There's emotional slavery on one side where I care about everybody's feelings and judgments. On the other side, there's this detachment where I am, I'm basically like, I'm out. And neither of those are going to work. And I was fortunate enough to read a book called Nonviolent Communication, where he addresses this exact thing, which is there's this middle, it's called emotional liberation, which is the ability to be there with an individual and be present in their experience, but have the boundaries to not carry that experience. So imagine I have a cup. And it's, it's halfway full with water. And that water is kind of, whatever's left in the cup is the amount of capacity I have to kind of bring in other people's emotions without overwhelming myself. By practicing what Marshall Rosenberg teaches, I kind of put a filter over the top of my water where if somebody would start to pour theirs in, it would maybe drip in instead of pour directly in. It's not that nothing got in. I'm not superhuman. It's that uh, it was more moderate. And the closer I am to somebody, like if it's my brother or my mom or my dad, the more that filter gets messed up and it almost pours right in every time. 
it's, it's more difficult for me there. But, but the point was to realize that I can be present and not be responsible. And I was accepting responsibility. And that practice of liberating myself from everybody's feelings and judgments, not with perfection again. And I say that every time because we, I think we're very dichotomous thinkers of you either do it perfectly or you do it like trash. And it's like, no, I just, I'm doing it better more often. And it's becoming something that I can do with more practice. So finding that space of emotional liberation allowed me to have that divine middle where I could still be there with people. But I recognized through a lot of guidance, counseling, and therapy that everybody's bringing me their entire history, even histories that they don't know about. And they don't always know that. They're coming to me maybe upset about something happening in the business. And they don't realize necessarily that is it inflaming them in a certain way because of something that happened to them in the past some idea that they carry that has nothing to do with the business. And it's not really necessarily about the thing. And so recognizing that helped me also put some distance between whatever they were bringing. Not that I wouldn't hear it. I want to hear it. But the fact that like they, I recognize everybody's bringing their whole life experience and then some to me means like it's not my responsibility to carry that whole thing. And I'll see if I can get the, the little nugget of insight out of it to help maybe make the business better. But I don't need to carry the whole thing. So if somebody's just flaming mad, probably a little bit about what happened here and a lot about what happened in the past that they don't even necessarily know it has not been dealt with yet. And just being like, hey, you know, I wish them well in that journey. And I hope that they are able to get the support they need and the insight they need to see that it's bigger than this thing. And this thing didn't cause their anger. This thing is a symptom, not, you know, it didn't start it. How much, Max, how much of that I'm learning, I'm not perfect, I'm trying, like I'm a flawed human being, how much of that did you find that you shared with employees that that actually came out of your mouth? That was part of what they knew you to be as someone that's growing, that's not perfect, not superhuman, not arrived. Did you, you know, kind of vulnerably share that? And if so, how did that vulnerability play? I was going to ask you about vulnerability anyway, because it was so prevalent in your book. Yeah, I think uh, vulnerability is like a glue. It brings people together. There is not a single person there who has not experienced the wholeness of the human condition. The wholeness being that we can at once be generous and greedy. We can at once be patient and impatient. It, it just maybe depends on the context or the moment to moment, right? But I am all the things that humans can be. I am not just the bright and shiny stuff. I am every single one of them. That's just a part. That's the human experience. That's the whole human experience. A perfectionist wants to be just the bright and shiny, beautiful things and not the others. And that's, you know, I'm a recovering perfectionist. I saw that if I was going to stay in that, my world could only get smaller over time because perfectionists have to control all the variables in order for it to be quote unquote perfect. And there's always a new variable they find that they have to then reject. And then the world just keeps getting smaller and smaller. And I can't learn any new skills if I'm a perfectionist because I have to be willing to be bad at something to get good at it. And so I'm only going to be really good at the things that I, they come naturally to me and anything that doesn't, I'm never going to be very good at it because I'm a perfectionist and I'm one willing to practice. It just doesn't work. So sharing that with my teammates was very important to me to answer your question, because I did not want them holding me to a standard that was insane. I was like, listen, I have never done this job before. I am asking and learning just like you are. I don't expect you to have all the answers and please don't expect me to have all the answers. And if it scares you to think that I do not have all the answers, I encourage you to not be here because that's how it's going to be, is I'm going to come up here and go, I don't know a lot. And if that makes you really, really nervous, go find somebody who doesn't say that. I doubt that they're being honest. I, yeah, I doubt that they're being honest. And this is how I prefer to do it. So like, if this is some folks who did make really uncomfortable, but then over time they started to realize, oh, that's not kind of silly that they would ever think that anybody would have all the answers. There's just this very gross thing and kind of CEO culture, like Steve Jobs style of like, 
well, he was a visionary who had all these answers. Like he didn't have all these answers and he made a ton of mistakes and scared the shit out of people. And it just wasn't, I don't think I've never done anything like Steve Jobs has done. I don't want to be somebody who's scaring the shit out of people. I, I think we have enough of that in the world. And I don't want to be somebody who's pretending like they do everything a certain way because that's just alienating to everybody else who doesn't feel that way. So what I realized is that it helped people trust me more after they got over the initial nervousness. It allowed them to then be vulnerable because if they're like, hey, if Max can say he doesn't know or if Max can say he made a mistake, then I can too. If Max is unwilling to do that, well, it's going to be very difficult for me to as well. And I loved when I realized that it's work culture is like, like a chocolate fountain. If I put something at the top, it falls right down. So if I am impatient, that is going to trickle down and everybody else now has latitude to be impatient. But if I'm impatient and then I apologize, then everybody else can realize, well, when I have an impatient moment, that's how we remedy it. We say we're sorry. And who isn't going to have an impatient moment, right? But if I'm impatient and I act like it's okay, then everybody else can be impatient and act like it's okay. So basically it all just down. And I think a culture is built by the CEO and their executive team doing certain things a certain way. And if they all agree to do those things a certain way, then the rest of the org will follow suit, whether it's life-giving or soul-sucking. And ideally, it's life-giving. But if that executive team is not aligned, then there will just be different cultures in the company because somebody's going to report to one of the executives that thinks differently, adapt to their style, right? So I think the whole executive team needs to be on that same page, not again with perfection, but close enough that we agree on that certain things matter and we want to show up certain ways. And those ways are fundamental. And when we don't show up those ways, we apologize. And if we do show up those ways, we, we say, hey, do you think that that was maybe the crux of the culture building that you did across these 270 people is not necessarily that you made all the, correct me if I'm wrong in any of these assumptions, but not necessarily that you made all the right decisions and that you built everything so perfectly and so well, but that when you didn't make the right decisions, you were quick to apologize, quick to own up to that, and that that humanness, that flawedness that's really what trickled down. And that's what allowed people to kind of be their true selves, be flawed and not sort of put up a front and maybe feel at home as a result. Right. Yeah. I would share very, very much my struggles, man. I would share very much my mistakes and that does, I didn't feel ashamed by them. I was like, I don't know how to do this any differently than I just did it. Otherwise I would have done it differently, but I don't know how to do it differently. And half the decisions in the company, 75% of the decisions company, I didn't make. Our executive team had so much latitude because they knew things I did not know. But if something did not go well in the business, it was always my job. And, and every executive would want to stand up there with me because they'd want to take responsibility too. But it was always my job to be like, I missed. You know, that was a miss on my part. Even if the decision wasn't, I wasn't even around for it, I let it ultimately happen under my watch. And that's what I want any manager to do. I want them to point at their teammate and be like, well, they made the call, so their fault. I'd want them to be like, well, shit, that was a miss on my part. Yeah. So I don't think it's really that difficult to, if and only if, right, that inner voice is not highly condemning to show up and just be like, I'm just a whole person. And so are you. And I bet if we both acknowledge that this is going to go better. But that inner voice being the critical boss kind of being in charge, driving the bus, that was something I had to give that critical voice a seat on the bus, but not driving it. Because that critical voice, it does insight. It can't be overplaying its hand. And the more I listen to it, the more it calms down. So I think a lot of people try to kick their critical voice off the bus. And I, that's not going to work. It's only going to get more power trying to repress it. But looking at it and saying, hey, I hear you. Tell me what you need, you know, in my own head and letting it speak. And then looking at the other voices on the bus, like more compassionate ones and more kind of playful ones. And also hearing them and having a huddle is a, is a way for everybody to feel heard, acknowledged, for us to get the group insight and then move forward. 
So we have a lot of listeners that are in the startup space, a lot of CEOs, CPOs in terms of people officers, I'm sure product officers too, but a lot of people that govern culture, build culture. And I think one of the things that comes up fairly often, and mostly because I'm just selfishly trying to learn <laughs> through my own podcast, but stage to stage, it's been a monumental effort to go from, say, 10, 15 people to 70 in terms of what culture looks like. I'm imagining it's going to be a monumental effort again as we grow to, say, 200 in the, in the next kind of year or two. Tell me what I need to know about not royally messing up <laughs> going from, say, 70 to 200. Like, what is it that I'm not seeing yet that would really help me scale on that front? So I'll tell you what I didn't see, being that I, we haven't had enough time for me to really kind of hear what you're thinking I don't want to be like, I know your diagnosis when I, we haven't really talked enough. Yeah, and it's 30 minutes always goes by like that. So <laughs> Yeah, I can tell you that some things that really work for us in the executive ranks, we, hire, we continue to hire for potential, not credential. Not to say that credentialed executives are always any one way, but I do believe that if you are a kind of a corporate executive, you've probably worked in a highly intimidating threat-based environment and potentially that seeped into how you think work should work and you bring that to the other company that does not benefit from that. I don't think any company benefits from that. But if you come from a more corporate world where you have the quote unquote experience, I would highly, probably highly likely that you have a lot of wounds that you may not be aware of. And if you think that the way that corporate America works is like life-giving and healthy, I disagree. So I disagree strongly. So yeah, so potential, I think is something where somebody maybe hasn't, they have less to unlearn on the kind of threat and intimidation side. They might still have a lot to learn on, you know, how to manage, but I'd rather do it that way than have somebody try to, you know, unwind this kind of vicious trauma that they might not even realize is happening because it happens so subtly in corporate America. So that keeping that executive team, that executive team energy is so important. And if somebody on that team believes that it's okay to intimidate or threaten or put a little fear of God into folks just to make sure that they're getting the work done, that ultimately, all that does is diminishes communication. So I believe that the more we communicate, the better we're going to do. And when people feel scared, they communicate less. So the fact of the matter is every individual brings their own fear to the business because we are humans and we have fear in us. So it keeps us alive. We wouldn't be here without this instinctual concern for our safety. And so we're going to bring fear to the business. This is not about having a place that doesn't have, it's about not exacerbating that natural fear. It's about not kind of tapping into it and preying on it. I will say like cable news, Fox News, CNN, they prey on that internal instinctual fear, keep people around. And I think that fucking sucks, man. I think that really sucks. And so, but it's easy. What it does is it gets compliance. If we want to get compliance from folks, tap into that fear part. And, but what you'll get is actually pseudo compliance. It'll look like somebody's doing what they need you to do while you're around, but they're actually undermining it at the very same time because they do not want to be scared and they resent being scared. So what's the alternative? Well, something that a lot of people roll their eyes at is when I say bringing love and compassion to the workplace. Here's what I mean by love and compassion. We still fire people when we bring love and compassion. Accountability is a part of love. There are many people who are married who would be better off apart. And that is a part of accountability in the love process of we're going to love one another better by not continuing to do it this way. So it, it's not like we let anybody do whatever they want when we bring love and compassion in. We still have boundaries. We still have accountability. We have difficult conversations that are clear. Hey, I'm frustrated with what's happening. And because I value consistency or I value communication and my sense is that the communication has been lacking here. So here's my request. Like we talk about this stuff. We use nonviolent communication to be clear and to share where we think somebody else is or to share what we're feeling. 
And it's not about coddling. People hear love and compassion and they think coddling. And I think that is a damn shame. I think that is a damn shame. How did those two things get mixed, right? Coddling is not loving. Coddling is codependency, right? Coddling creates this ugly, ugly, it's It's damaging. It's not love. It's not love. And, you know, it's just too bad, you know, that has to be explained, but it does. So bringing love and compassion to the workplace, which is to say, we believe in you. We trust you. If you struggle in a given job, doesn't mean you can't be our friend. It just might mean that that's not the right job for you. If you decide to leave this company, you can still be a friend of this company. It's not contingent on your employment. If we decide that we don't think you're the right fit for this company, it's not because we don't think you're worthy as a human. It's just because we don't think it's the right fit right now. It, we don't have to dehumanize or take people's dignity. And I think when we scare the crap out of them, we untreat them with dignity. They don't need to do anything to earn dignity. Dignity is just a human baseline. And so when we lead that way, what people do is they bring their own motivation because fear is about getting them motivated. But people bring internal motivation when they feel trusted. They're like, well, I don't want to mess this up. These people are caring for me. They're genuinely caring for me. I want to show them that I appreciate it. So the the intrinsic motivation, we don't need to intimidate them. We can still set goals. We can still miss those goals and hit those goals and talk about it. And those can be motivating in their own way. But the best motivation comes from that person going, I want to do this, not I have to do this. So how do you facilitate a, a culture where people feel trusted and loved? And when maybe there's a sense of fear, they're able to go, I'm nervous because I'm intimidated by this and we can talk about it. Because like I said, we're going to bring our own fear to the workplace. We have to be able to communicate through it. And we should not add fuel to that fire because all it does is decrease communication. And then you have people not sharing potential opportunities and potential icebergs. And you know the potential icebergs are like, I saw it, but I was too scared to say anything about it because I didn't want to get in trouble for saying something about it. Or you better still like missing potential opportunities because they're nervous about the repercussions of pointing out a potential opportunity and it not being one. And so we're missing out on, we're going to hit more icebergs and we're going to miss more opportunities because people are scared. And so, yeah, just like whatever you can do to build a place where people don't, we're only bringing the minimum amount of fear. And some folks will just not adapt to that because they've been hurt so many times that they can't be in the business undermining it without trying to because they're, they're hurt and they just don't trust whatever you're offering. That'll happen. Somebody will come with so much pain that they will not be able to accept that you're not trying to add to that pain. But they have to figure that out on their own time. And, you know, we'll, have, we'll offer them love, but they can't be in the team. I'm going re- to read you. I never try to make this about Fringe because it's not about Fringe, but I have to read you this. I wrote this a couple of years ago, and it's in our values book for our company. It's, the title is We Act With Courage. It says, we will not win without losing. We got here by taking chances, failing boldly, and trying relentlessly again and again. So let's try stuff, take chances, lose and learn from it. And here's the kicker. And may we never succumb to fear. You know, (laughs) I mean, when you were talking, I was just like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, dude, it's beautiful. I love that you've written a book on your behaviors and your values. And yeah, fear, man, it is it is an energy that is not life giving. It can keep us alive. But if it drives the bus, it becomes very soul sucking. Yeah, right. But just alive. Just yeah, right. Just alive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not living just alive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference. I agree, Jordan. Thank you. Uh, well, this was a whole lot of fun. I had like eight more things I wanted to ask you, but that's okay. Well, maybe we'll do it again sometime. But I'd be happy to do it again. I enjoy speaking with you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, Max, we we'll really appreciate your time. And yeah, if you want to follow Max, check him out on LinkedIn, obviously. He just was acquired by Seismic and it'd be really cool to kind of track that story if you want to look that up. But the company, once again, is called Lessonly. So huge value add to any organization, especially trying to uh, hire and train and ramp up salespeople, customer facing people, 
just something I know my company needs and, and probably yours does too as a listener. So thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week on Bragworthy Culture. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us.